the Urban Aggers Podcast, episode number seven. My name is James, and today I am joined by economist, agorist, and professor of entrepreneurship, Per Beeland. Per is one of the very few agorists you'll find in academia today, so I am super excited to have this conversation with him. Before we get started, though, let me tell you about Fold. I've been using Fold for several months now to purchase gift cards using Bitcoin. It's a great way to use my cryptocurrency as money and not just as a store of value. Fold has just announced the launch of the Fold card. The Fold card is a debit card that rewards you with Bitcoin for every purchase that you make. If you're interested in earning free Bitcoin, and who isn't, head over to urbanagorist.com fold to sign up today. Again, this is a debit card and not a credit card, so there's no credit check or debt to worry about. It's just free Bitcoin for every purchase you make with the Fold card. Once again, that's urbanagorist.com fold to sign up today. All right, welcome to the Urban Agorist podcast. My name is James. Today, I am joined by Pear Beeland. Uh, welcome to the show, Pear. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience for us? Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Um, sure. Uh, professionally speaking, I'm an assistant professor of entrepreneurship at Oklahoma State University, um, where I do the normal things that the professors do, do research, teach, uh, sit in endless faculty meetings, talking about things that don't really matter. Um, in terms of probably more interesting to your listeners, I have a fairly long, I wouldn't call it career, but background in, in sort of the freedom movement. So I started out as sort of a minarchist kind of libertarian in the mid 90s. I turned anarchist in the late 90s. I started anarchism.net as sort of an anarchist portal back in 99. Uh, and then I started writing for lurockwell.com and some for mises.org. Uh, and now uh, I guess I, I do mostly economics and entrepreneurship stuff uh, rather than outright libertarian stuff. Um, and I, but I guess my main affiliation would be the Mises Institute, uh, where I am a formerly a fellow, but I tend to go to as, I try to go to as many events as possible. Okay. And you're also a fellow at, a, at an institution in Sweden as well, right? That's correct. I'm not sure exactly what the title is in, in English. Uh, something like associated something with them. Sure. Um, it's the Ratio Institute. Um, they do research on entrepreneurship and economic growth pretty much. So they, they study small businesses and and how policy affects entrepreneurs and growth. Great. Yeah, Sweden in 2020 has gone from the, uh, the very image of socialism to the very image of freedom um, just by their pandemic response. Uh, and I guess both of those things are more stereotyped than, than reality. But, uh, yeah, of course they are. But uh, I mean, it is funny that uh, Sweden was sort of the socialist paradise and then I left and then suddenly it's about freedom. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's correlation, not causation, I hope. Yeah, it's not very, it's not very many countries that you've got um, the Bernie Sanders supporters and the Trump supporters, uh, you know, calling for emulating those. Um, so I'm really fascinated uh, by an article that you wrote what 14 years ago very long time ago but it has gained more relevance now than ever um it's at lurockwell.com and it's called a strategy for forcing the state back and in it you describe um how carl hess was able to kind of transform a neighborhood in washington dc into sort of an agorist paradise or at least whatever whatever um 
paradise you can get in the middle of a big urban center. Um, you also talked about some, uh, a couple of models of doing agorism. I'd love to hear you talk about sort of Carl Hess's work uh, and also your models. Sure. Um, I mean, when I talk about Carl Hess there, this is really just a, a very, very brief summary of his little book, Community Technology, uh, which I, I, I guess it's not super known, but a lot of people should probably read it because it's very interesting. Yeah. Where he, he combines his uh, personal experiences from, from New York uh, about building uh, communities and building networks and sort of building uh, neighborhoods that are self-sufficient. So what they did were, was basically, I guess, under his guidance, um, they produced fish in big tanks and basements. They uh, grew veggies and, and fruits and stuff on, on rooftops and things like that. So they were, in a sense, disconnecting with the huge uh, supply chains and, and all of this food production that is really, um, it's, it's centralized, which is, sort of not very libertarian in itself, but it could be, but it's also centralized uh, through government subsidies. And it's of course strictly, um, it's taxed and regulated like crazy, which means it's the, it, it works as a market, I suppose, but it's not a very well working market and it's definitely not open uh, for new entrants. So, um, in, in a sense, community technology just meant that they disconnected from all that so that they could um, provide themselves as a community with uh, food and, and other things. And that, that fascinated me because, as you said, in the, in the middle of a big city, you could actually grow fish and, and farm fish and your own veggies and all, all the stuff like that. It doesn't mean, of course, that we have to, as libertarians, we should turn our backs on society and mm-hmm. and. and just start uh, growing our own food. Um, what, it, what it does mean though, is that there, there are endless possibilities. There are ways of, of cutting ties with whatever businesses you don't like and whatever government institutions you don't like and so forth. So, I mean, but what the article is about, so that you referred to is, is two different strategies and there's in a sense very similar. I mean, Carl Hess's community technology is sort of what it's the first one, the one that I talk about, the, the vertical or introvert um, strategy. And I call it introvert because it's, it's um, really the, the small community, the small units, neighborhoods, uh, clubs, uh, friends, cir- circles of friends and so forth. And they turn inwards to help each other out in sort of small communities and or collectives, whatever you want to call them. Um, the other one is sort of reaching out uh, so I call that extrovert or horizontal because it's, it's based off of, of trade with others. So you don't need really a, all this, such a strong relationship with someone whom you're just trading with. Um, but trading, of course, in sort of a concanite way where you uh, do not involve the state. So um, if you recall, Sam, Sam Konkin um, proposed that we engage in counter-economics, which is basically taking all of your economic actions or as much as possible out of the realm of the state and instead do it in, in a free way, um, voluntarily with other libertarians. Um, so what that means is simply that, well, instead of buying from a company with all the licenses and, and taxes and everything, you might 
hired your your neighbor's kid to mow your lawn and you do not file taxes, which is, of yeah. course, a normal thing. No, no one really does that, right? No, no one reports to the IRS that, oh, yeah, I, I paid the neighbor's son 20 bucks, whether you have to or not. But you can expand that. And that's what uh, Konkin does uh, in his sort of theoretical book and also what Janiel Schulman does in Alongside Night, where he talks right. about how a, a, a separate or parallel society has created a big market and where they trade freely with each other. It's a sort of a free market where the government is not involved whatsoever. And what's fascinating with that is that the larger it gets, um, the more exchanges you have with other people, while well, you spread a message to those people, whether they're anarchists or not, they don't have to be, uh, that you don't actually need the state for all this stuff. And when when you expand the, the network with all these exchanges, you create a, a, a need for uh, services and institutions for, say, there's a conflict, well, then you need some kind of arbiter uh, someone who can sell that service and someone will be entrepreneurial enough to say, hey, I'll, I'll take care of this conflict and I'll help you solve this and I'll help yeah. you interpret the contract and so forth, right? So it, the uh, horizontal or extrovert strategies is sort of the building new institutions within the shells of the old. Um, so so we're, it's bottom up, whereas the, the other one is sort of falling out of the centralized state in a sense. One of the benefits of that horizontal approach to um, sort of creating a market aside, uh, beside the other, the the established markets um, is that it doesn't require us to impose our values on other people as, as uh, like voting for the libertarian candidate and somehow getting her elected would do. Uh, is that, is that something that you would, that you would agree with? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm opposed to this sort of shove it down your throat libertarianism. Yeah. Uh, and I wrote a, a bunch of articles, I think on strikethroot.com, um, where I argued that you save the world by saving yourself. I think the title was even saving the world by saving yourself. And there was like two or three of them, where I argued exactly this, that the problem that we have as libertarians is that we tend to think of, well, I can't be free unless there is a totally free society. So we need to liberate 330 million people in the U.S. in order for us to be a little bit free. Well, obviously, that's, a, that's an uphill battle, <laughs> to say the least, right? And, and it's also the case that most of the people in this country or anywhere, really, they don't want to be liberated from the state. Yeah. They support they, the state. They think that if I, you know, I... I if I want to be free from a virus, then I need the state to lock me in my house. Um, yeah, and, and it's it, practically and, and everything, it, right? Right, and it seems delusional to to you and me, and maybe it is delusional, but it's not delusional to them. And good luck convincing them otherwise, because it's not like they're reading a book and deciding I want the state to lock me in, in my house. They're feeling a fear, and thinking the way that I get rid of this fear is by being locked in my house and everyone else being locked in theirs as well. Exactly. And why, why don't we practice what we preach? I mean, we're individualists and we want people to well, go about their lives, whatever way they see fit. And we even say that, well, in a libertarian society, if you want to live in your communist little commune, go ahead. Mm-hmm. But we, we are much more tolerant than anybody else. So we would allow them to do that. 
well, one, why do we need to start by shoving libertarianism down their throats then? It doesn't make any sense. And it's not actually true that we need to liberate the whole country or the whole world or whatever in order to be free. And that's what Konkin showed in the New Libertarian Manifesto um, with counter-economics, that you can remove, well, some people can remove everything they do from, from the realm of the state, mm-hmm. and live freely, even though they live in this society. So they avoid taxation, they avoid regulations, they trade only with people uh, using cash or whatever. Uh, and all these things, well, that means really that you are uh, doing two things, right? You're liberta- liberating yourself first, which is what we're trying to do anyway. <laughs> that is the goal, right? So you're just taking the shortcut and you're setting an example, right? So you're setting an example for other libertarians for how, how to do it. And you're also setting an example for other people that, hey, look at that. It actually works without the state. Whereas if we're tra- engaging in party politics and trying to get uh, Joe Jorgensen elected for president or something like that in order to then start dismantling the state, well, that's probably the hardest way uh-huh. can find to actually see <laughs> times. I mean, and that's not going to happen. It's, it's just that simple. And, of course, it's not practicing what we preach because we are uh, using collectivist means for individualist ends. Mm-hmm means we're taking our preferences and forcing other people to live according to our preferences. And this is totally unlibertarian. And it's, it's not like, it's not like four years of a libertarian president would then dismantle the state. I mean, if you had the strongest anarchist or agorist presidents in office, you know, it would take years and years and years. And there's no way the state is going to allow you know, even after one term of a libertarian president, uh, there's no way they're going to allow another term, let alone many, many terms that it would it would take for the state to be dismantled. Yeah, and there would be immense uh, uh, resistance every step of the way. So what what you need is really well, we need a libertarian president who is impeccable and principled uh, in the White House, and then we need a libertarian Senate and a libertarian House. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we probably need uh, libertarians in the Supreme Court. Well, and and not only and not only not only principled, but also persuasive, uh, yes. because you have three hundred million people to convince, minus the million or so who are principled libertarians. Right, because all um, these anarchists in government need to be reelected in order yeah. to actually dismantle the government, which is not happening. I mean, right. why are we kidding ourselves? So that's that. Yeah. I mean, right now we're in election season. By the time this article or this podcast gets published, uh, we will probably be after the election. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, right now we're seeing presidential debates and libertarians are arguing over who won the debate. Um, and I, I can't imagine a more inane conversation to be having than who won between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. It's not like the debate is going to determine our freedom, let alone, um, I mean, it's just a waste of time, in my opinion. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So what uh, what are some of the differences between, like, the Konkin view of a market and the Rothbardian view of a market? I think that's kind of where their main differ- differences lied. Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean... The, the main difference would probably be in terms of libertarian strategy, mm-hmm. um, where Konkin would be for counter-economics, whereas 
Rothbard would be, well, not counter-economics, I suppose. Uh, and Rothbard was a little bit all, all over the place and tried a lot of things uh, trying to affect change. So I'm not sure exactly what would be the Rothbardian take on it. Um, I mean, in terms of their economics, I think Rothbard sort of falls into the trap of using the market as it is, as a, a model or blueprint for how a free market would work without the state. Uh, so if you look at, uh, say, power and markets, he's talking about how you could have uh, competing protection agencies and things like that. But he's really um, looking at it in terms of corporations doing this stuff. So right. if you have Protection Inc. versus versus We Save You Inc. And, and then they are these big corporations and they therefore have sort of market influence and they are reliable because they are big and they're competing with each other and things like that. Whereas I think Konkin would use a much more decentralized approach and Konkin would be much more open for uh, different types of solutions. Um, and of course, a main difference here is Rothbard would be pro-corporation and Konkin would be con-corporation. Sure. Konkin would not see the corporation as, as a, a market phenomenon uh, whereas Rothbard would see it as a basically the the number one market phenomenon in the sense that that's how you organize production. Sure. Why do you think that is? What a uh, what what is it about corporations that Rothbard um, thought that in the absence of the state uh, corporations would just naturally arise, whereas Konkin thought in the absence of the state corporations couldn't naturally arise? Or am I am I mis misinterpreting uh, that? No, I think, well, yeah, I think that is that's basically uh, correct. And I think Rothbard's argument is historical, mm -hmm. uh, that we have seen in a fairly free market. I mean, it's never been a completely free market and free market anarchism ever, anywhere. But we saw in, in, in economies that were not regulated very much that corporations emerged and, and we saw a lot of benefits from limited liability and, and things like that. Uh, so many of these sort of institutions that are not necessarily state institutions emerged. Um, but of course, you can also claim that, well, limited liability itself is problematic because mm -hmm. um, it really saves you from the downside of signing contracts, whereas no one really has for their responsibility anymore. I mean, basically the, step, the state steps in um, and, and the corporation is hierarchically organized, which someone who is... Uh, very much in tune with sort of their uh, anarchist compass would go, well, why would we organize this hierarchically as corporations are with like workers at the bottom and then you have uh, management in a number of tiers and then you have owners at the very top. Um, why would that be the case? Aren't there other ways of organizing production and why would they be so big and, and things like that, right? So I've, I've done some work looking into um, this issue with organizations and why, why are they so big? And I think Kevin Carson at C4SS has done good work in, in sort of uncovering um, the, the problems with thinking about the corporation as a market uh, creation and seeing the corporation as rather a subsidized form of, of production in a corporatist or what he would call a capitalist system. Mm -hmm. That seems uh, that seems kind of Marxist. That might rub people the wrong way. What a 
what would you say is the difference between that and what Karl Marx would have or any other socialist or communist would say about hierarchical structures? Well, I mean, in a sense, uh, in a sense, it's correct because Kevin Carson is a socialist, right? So mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not that that far fetched. Right. On the other hand, I mean, you would only I mean, I, I instinctively am skeptical towards hierarchy because hierarchy is very okay. costly. And, and that's where I get, where I, I, I start my analysis as sort of an, an economist, uh, that what are the reasons for hierarchy? And very often it's, it's simply just assumed that hierarchy is cheaper um, than market because market is decentralized and there's an information problem and all of this stuff. But then, then you're assuming that there is a, a cost uh, benefit for having a corporation because corporations exist, so they must have a cost benefit. Well, that's not really a very good argument. And if you look at how corporations are actually run, my goodness, they are definitely not efficient. That's not why they are big. Right? <laughs> so not something else has to explain this. Um, so it's it's not market. Uh, instead, it's something else. And, and Kevin Carson has pointed to uh, subsidies in terms of of uh, infrastructure and uh, subsidies in terms of barriers to entry, which allows businesses to grow much bigger than they otherwise would have been. Um, And that also centralizes production and mass production. Uh, I I usually say that um, the economies of scale are exaggerated in the market that we have today for the simple reason that there are barriers to entry, there's subsidized transportation, Mm -hmm. And because of all these influences by the state, you have had a lot of innovation in trying to make very mass uh, quantity production uh, technologies efficient, whereas you have not had the same investments in local solutions or small scale production and things like that, right? So, so you that, that it further enhances centralization and mass uh, production. And of course, looking at things like production in China. So you, you produce all kinds of weird stuff in China and then you transport them all over the world and you can buy stuff on Amazon for for your gadgets or whatever. And you, you pay like 50 cents and they will produce it in China and send it to you for 50 cents. And then you get a couple of extra because they're, because they, they want to give you something for free and <laughs> whatever else. But it, it, it's subsidized. I mean, just sort of transportation, in this case, production itself is subsidized because you have an authoritarian government mm-hmm. that's making sure that the cost is really low because they want to get manufacturing there so that they can control it. Um, and then you have international transportation on international waters where where ships aren't really taxed much at all because it depends on where, uh, what type of flag they ha- have and things like that. And on international waters, they are not really subject to any loss regarding pollution or what have you and things like that, right? So, so all of this together has, has pushed everything towards a sort of mass production hysteria where everything is produced and standardized to a point where it's almost ridiculous, right? So every, everybody's, in a sense, uh, adjusting to the standardized version and getting standard, standard components. Sure. Whereas that would probably not be the case in a free market based on property, because then you wouldn't have, 
you would have to bear the cost of pollution. You would have to pay for all the transportation costs. You would have to figure out where the consumers are, right? Because that's where the value is. Mm-hmm. And being close to consumers and offering them something that they, whoever they are, really like is much more valuable than offering something standard that no no one is super happy with, but it sort of fits with everyone. Because if you're offering a standardized product to over 7 billion people, well, it seems like the market is really huge. Well, it's going to be a great fit for almost no one, mm-hmm. right? So most people are going to say, oh, I mean, if this was a little bit different, I would pay a lot more. Well, if there are no barriers to entry, there would be hundreds or thousands of entrepreneurs willing and able to discover those opportunities that, hey, this standardized solution is not very good, but I have an idea for how to differentiate and do this a little bit differently so I can speak to uh, this other audience or this segment of these customers and I can take them all and, and they will buy from me because they love the product so much, right? But since that doesn't happen, that tells me that something is stopping others from, from competing with us. So there's, I mean, we know there are barriers to entry, but we also can infer from the fact that this is so ridiculously centralized that there must be something stopping entrepreneurs from actually competing using consumer value. It seems like there's a almost an artificial lack of scarcity that distorts the market because of these um, kind of indirect subsidies almost. I, I never really thought about it like that. You're, you just kind of blew my mind a little bit. You think about subsidies as like money given to corporations by the government in order to do the government's bidding. But in reality, I mean, the fact that there's an interstate highway system and international shipping routes and the Panama Canal, I mean, all of these things that are either paid for or... Uh, regulated by governments um, makes it easier for these huge multinational corporations to work in their own interests rather than, rather than uh, smaller, local, more local, less centralized businesses to arise. Is that about Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and I mean, in the market, everything is about rel- what is relative, right? So, so uh, prices are always relative and consumers choose depending on the value of the product, but also the price that they're giving up. So they're, they're always adjusting their behavior based on what the different opportunities that they see and everything like that. Right. And the same thing with, with, with production. So it's not the case that transportation is free, but it is the case that if you drive a truck very many miles, it's cheaper per item that you're, you're transporting. than if you, if you, that use a truck to transport a few goods locally, right? So you have a higher cost per item locally on small scale than you would for really, really large scale, even if the distance is enormous, right? And that is a relative subsidy. Even if both are sort of taxed by government, if one is taxed significantly less, that is a relative subsidy, which means we're going to get more of that, right? So you're probably going to get less of everything if you're taxing everything, but you're the, um, the, the uh, distribution of small scale and large scale is going to be skewed because of the difference in, in subsidies and a difference in taxation. This is a little bit hypothetical, but do you think that things like the internet, cryptocurrency even, would have arisen in uh, the absence of the state? 
Um, good question. I mean, some kind of a network for communication certainly would have. Um, I think that is that is pretty obvious. Would it have been the internet? Well, who knows? Mm. I, it might have been something that is a little more efficient and a little better. <laughs> it's not. I mean, the internet is not super efficient. Right. Um, uh, would there have been cryptocurrencies? I don't know. I mean, there the would blockchain technology have been invented? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, and probably much sooner. Yeah. It seems like, it seems like blockchain and direct peer to peer type things would probably have uh, come first if the internet that we know today ever came about, they seem yeah, to, me to be more, more efficient and more just commonsensical uh, type technologies. Yeah, because if you look at it, government is all about big, large-scale solutions. Mm -hmm. And it's all about really creating public goods, too. And the internet, in a sense, is that, right? That any server responds to any request and everything is just just bumping around and it gets to where it, where it wishes. Whereas there are plenty of better ways of, of, of doing this if you want to design a system. But there are probably, there's probably a lot of space for competing solutions at the same time too. Whereas now we have one because it was a, a government creation that was the only one that existed and there was no market for anything else. And then they let it go sort of, and it was there. So of course then, then we used it uh, because if it is there, we use it. The same as the Panama channels that you mentioned, since it is there, well, then we're going to transport stuff on ships between yeah. the oceans. Uh, but if we had to go around, then we probably would have transported some other way. You've, uh, you're the author of a book called The Problem of Production. It's a new theory of the firm. Um, and I know we've talked a little bit about that. What, um, what's sort of the thesis of that book? And where I noticed that it's, it's priced like a textbook. So I'm guessing that it's meant for a more academic audience. But can you, uh, can you kind of describe it for the lay audience? Sure, absolutely. And, and you're right. I mean, it's a it's a, not even a textbook, it's aimed at scholars. So it's a, it's a sort of a research book, which means that pretty much the only uh, market that they're aiming for is university libraries. Mm -hmm. they, they pay whatever, you, whatever price you print on the book. So I, I think it's um, the hardcover is like 180 bucks or something yeah, like that. something like that. So it's pretty much a dollar a page, which you could think is a little much for a book. <laughs> it's a pretty good one, but still. So it's a lot of money. I would love to sell it for much, much less. But yeah. the, the option, of course, is not publishing or self-publishing, and then you wouldn't get the word out at all. Sure, yeah. So, so in, in a sense, this book is a continuation of my dissertation. Um, and it's, it's my, so far, my only real contribution to Austrian economics. I'm combining my, my Austrian economics with the sort of mainstream research that I did in grad school with, of course, the questions I ask as an anarchist. Okay, so uh, I was introduced early on to the theory of the firm literature where they tried to figure out what is the value of having a firm at all? Why, why are there the, these sort of hierarchies of organizing production instead of, as mainstream economic theory would have it, well, if you just assume perfect competition, then there would pretty much be no firms because everybody would be self-employed and they would just contract with each other and that would be hallelujah, that would be general equilibrium and everything would be perfectly efficient. 
So of course the firm then is a problem because that is not market. Inside the firm, there is no market. So what is the reason? Well, there are plenty of different explanations, but none of them are actually very good. Because most of them, they, they ask the question, but then they assume the answer. So they would assume, just like we talked about before, that, well, there is a firm because, and the firm is not a market. So there must be a cost of exchanging in the market that does not exist in the firm. And therefore we have firms. Yeah, but that's super circular. I mean, that's just saying that, oh, there, here's a phenomenon, which means, economically speaking, it must be cheaper than anything else. So there must be some relative cost to everything else. Well, it doesn't explain anything at all, really. Uh, so what I try to do in, in the book is look at, okay, what, what does the market process actually look like? So drawing from Austrian economics and also anarchist theory, really. Um, I have a book, the, a book chapter coming out where I use anarchist economic theory uh, to show that it too supports my view of what the firm is. So I, I, I sort of draft the free market process, um, elaborate on, on Mises and others. And then I ask the question, what kind of problem would this type of market process face that could potentially be solved by something we might call a firm? Mm -hmm. And what I find there is, is that, well, progress is really ever since Adam Smith, we've understood it in terms of a, a more intensive division of labor. So greater specialization and thereby we get more productive. And we see that today we're super specialized compared to 10 years ago to, to compared to 50 years ago. And that's why we can produce so much stuff and we're so wealthy. Okay, well, if you assume that the market is just decentralized, everybody's an individual and they're exchanging with each other, that means that there's an extent to the market that limits uh, what you can do. So you can specialize yourself, but you can't specialize a whole lot because then you're going to be incompatible with everybody else. Okay. Uh, and then you can sort of combine your efforts with someone else and say, well, you know what, this task that we're doing and selling in the economy, well, how about I do the first half and you do the second half and then, then we can specialize on that and be really efficient doing it. And you can go, oh, okay, sure. Yeah, this is simple enough and let's do it. And, and, you can, and then others will follow suit and then the market will have adopted that specialization level, if you will. Well, that doesn't really solve the problem because with more advanced production. Because with more advanced production, you're part of a very elaborate supply chain. And then in order to innovate there, you're basically taking one stage of production and you are replacing it by a new type of process. You're completely rethinking how to do things, but you need to stay compatible. So you need to use the inputs that others are using and you need to produce the outputs that are used in later stages, but you want to do it a completely different way. Well, you have to uh, guide that process somehow. You have to hire people because you can't do it yourself because that's not really specialization, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> several different people in that stage and then you probably need to develop some new tools and things like that. And you can't know exactly how it works or how, it, how you can make it better and make it actually work well. And you also cannot know that it's profitable. You can only have sort of hunches. So how do you do that? Well, you need upfront investment so you can pay the costs before you have any revenue. So it's, and, and thereby you bear the uncertainty of this entrepreneurial endeavor and you have to hire people and pay them whether or not it works out, mm -hmm. right? And develop the capital. I mean, this could be a very, very long process. 
Well, this in itself is not subject to market prices. So what are these people going to earn in terms of wages? Well, you have to get them out of whatever they're doing right now. So to pay them more, but how much, how do you know what is sufficient? What is, what is sufficient? What is a profitable salary and what is not? You can't know unless there is competition for exactly those things. And there's not because you just innovated this, right? So in a sense, you're, you are creating an island that is separate from the market trade because you just created this and you're doing something that no one has done before. And thereby everybody's going to see this. I mean, from, from an outside point of view, you're going to see this as something different, sort of an island of specialization, I call it. And this I call a firm. And this would explain then how someone can imagine a way of producing something and bring it about through entrepreneurial investment and hiring people. Of course, if you're making a ton of money doing this, which means you're successful, others are going to copy what you're doing, trying to do the same thing. And with more people copying what you're doing, they're going to probably try to poach your employees because they have experience already. They're trying to buy, uh, get your customers and get whatever information they can. Well, this creates a market between these islands of, of specialization. So in that sense, the firms are sort of subsumed into the market and establish a new uh, level of, of specialization. So it's a, it's a little technical, I suppose, but it, it explains how the market does not only um, sort of have continuous progress towards mm -hmm. more specialization and more value creation and higher standard of living, but it also takes leaps forward through innovation and and. How does that happen? Well, that's what I call a firm because you have these integrated units that the entrepreneur creates. So instead of like, I'm the entrepreneur and I'm naming myself the CEO and I'm going to hire all of these people to do all of these jobs. Um, and the reason that they're going to do what I say is because I'm the boss. It's more just they're going to do what the purpose of the firm is because they're the best at it. Is that, is that yeah, a good synthesis? Getting, right. Right. And they're getting paid to do it, but they're getting paid also to learn and figure out exactly how to do what no mm -hmm. one has done before. And of course they're, they're interdependent, right? So for this new chain, this new process to work, all of the pieces have to work because if one fails then the whole chain fails and the endeavor fails. So they're basically in the same boat, all of them, even if the entrepreneur might be the one financing the whole thing and have the, the idea to begin with, but usually does not have the, um, the detailed, very specific knowledge of exactly how to do all of these things. So it's, it's really a, it's a discovery process and a development process by those who are part of the process from the beginning. And then you can, can figure out ways to standardize uh, those tasks, of course, especially when others start copying what you're doing. Um, then standardization will sort of happen almost immediately and well, almost automatically anyway. What do you say to the person um, who says that hierarchy is inevitable? I mean, if I start a, if I start a company and I'm, I'm the entrepreneur and um, you know, it's, it's me and uh, 
I know how to develop this product, but I don't know how to develop it as well as the software engineer that I'm going to hire to come and, you know, tie together the loose ends for me. Um, but now we've got a bunch of clients. So we need, um, we need someone to manage the relationship with the clients. And so those two people are reporting to me as the CEO and I'm overseeing everything that's going on. Uh, but now we have a whole bunch of clients and we need more and more client managers. Um, so we need a director to oversee them. And then just uh, before you know it, you've got this huge hierarchical organization. Um, is that something that needs to be intentionally avoided or is it something that can be by design avoided? Well, I don't think it has to be intentionally avoided. I mean, the, the story I'm telling in, in the, the book, The Problem Production, is really that hierarchy or at least the islands of specialization, however you want to organize those, they're a means towards a better functioning, more effective market, mm. right? So what I see it is that, well, hierarchy has a function, but hierarchy, when it matures, falls apart, it disintegrates and becomes market. Market is sort of the perfection of what was aimed for as a hierarchy. So, so in your example, uh, with expanding and, and getting more people and thereby creating a hierarchy, I mean, in the sense that's that's up to the owners of of whatever capitals is in the firm to determine that. But with every layer that they add, they add a lot of overhead. So I think in, in that sense, as a business owner and entrepreneur, you need to avoid hierarchy as much as possible. I mean, it, we have this sort of illusion that it's better to control things than to let things be and let's let's see and focus on value because yeah. it seems like things can well go down the tubes basically. The problem is c control does not only suffocate innovation and value creation; it's also super expensive. Yeah. So if you have no barriers to entry, you would have much much less hierarchy. Control is expensive, and you don't have much to show for it. Whereas hiring a good specialist might be expensive on paper, but at least you've got that specialist's production. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the, if you add a lot of layers, I mean, look at any huge corporation with like mm -hmm. 50 or 100,000 people employed and you have many different offices and you have complete departments just working on pretty much internal communication and making sure that the people report to the right guy yeah. and have all, <laughs> all these round... <laughs> communication uh, procedures and all this stuff. I mean, yeah. everyone needs to stay in line because there's a blueprint for this whole freaking thing. Well, all of these things mean that you're wasting resources, right? The, the, there's a lot of overhead in every step along the way. And this overhead, there's always a, an opportunity cost. Mm -hmm. This overhead could be production. It could be value creation, but it's not. Which of course, to me, that raises the question, why the heck do we have these huge corporations then with all this overhead without, instead of creating value, how come they can still exist? Well, obviously they're making, they're, they make more money off of what they sell than the cost that they have. But that's, a, that's not, that's just a fraction of the story. The real story is why doesn't anybody else enter the market with less hierarchy and less overhead and outcompete these guys? doing exactly the same thing, but at much lower cost. And well, a lot of that has to do with the fact that they can't. Yeah, they have the barriers to entry, exactly. Um, 
So you also, so you are a professor, professor of entrepreneurship and you have a lot of popular writing um, just at Entrepreneur Magazine uh, and I think Forbes as yeah. well, right? Um, and that the, the stuff that you write for these more popular uh, outlets is not Austrian leaning at all, really. Is that, is that right? Do you? It is to some extent. Uh, I mean, I, I try to, you can't really in, in these, I mean, these are, these aren't real articles. It's more like listicles. Mm. So you, you bring up a problem or an issue that is of, of relevant to entrepreneurs. And then you say, here are five things to think about one, two, three, four, five. And that's basically it. Right. So you can't do a whole lot in these things. Um, but I, I draw from Austrian economics quite a bit, and I have a couple of, okay. of of these columns that are actually discussing one is even discussing Menger and Mises and things like that in the listicle, uh, sort of indirectly uh, promoting Austrian economics. Um, and I'm also drawing from a lot of Austrian conceptions, like putting the customer first, that the value is really created by the customer, mm-hmm. that determines the price that can be charged for the product. And your job as an entrepreneur is to is to figure out a way to produce and keep the costs below the price because that's how you're getting profits. Whereas most people would probably think about it the other way around, saying that, oh, I want to produce this product. Um, so that costs me this much. So I have to charge this cost plus uh, profit margin. Okay, let's go. Right? And Nostrum would say, no, no, no. The value is in the eyes of the consumer. Mm-hmm. So that is a a ceiling for the price and the lower the price uh, is compared to the value the consumer sees in the product, the easier it's going to be to sell because it's a deal for the consumer, right? And you have to provide the consumer with additional value compared to what everybody else is, is offering them. So you don't really determine the price. The consumer determines whether the price is worth it or not. So you have to figure that out. It's not really yours to calculate or anything. You have to just figure it out. And then your job is really to focus on the cost to make sure that produce it at a cost lower than the price so that you can earn a profit. What, uh, what personality traits do you think go into being a good entrepreneur? Or do, is, there, is there nothing that is, is it not that cut and dried? Well, I don't think it is that easy. I mean, entrepreneurship, the discipline started out thinking about, oh, who is the entrepreneur and mm-hmm. thinking of the entrepreneur's adventurer and stuff like that. Um, I mean, there are some things that you need as an entrepreneur. So you need to sell. I mean, that's the number one. So in that sense, you need some sort of uh, ex- um, outgoing kind of uh, personality traits, or at least learn how to sell. But I mean, now we're entering sort of a, a, an age of the nerds where being a nerd and being having really, really deep, specific knowledge on something really quirky, it could be really beneficial and really valuable in the market. So I wouldn't say that there, that there is a, a personality type that, that works really well for it. Um, instead, I, what I would say, what I've said in, in the Economics for Entrepreneurs podcast, for instance, it's one of those new initiatives from the Mises Institute is that you really need two things or two types of knowledge to be a good entrepreneur. And one is to understand people because you have to speak to your customers and figure out what they value. Right. And the same thing with your employees. I mean, you need to um, make sure that they, they are passionate about what you're doing and, 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 and do the right thing and things like that. And the other is to understand economics, sound economics, because if you understand the economy and how it works, 
then you can very easily figure out where, what your position is, where it's headed, uh, and you can figure out the combination, how people work and how markets work and exploit that. Great. Well, I appreciate that. As a, as a budding entrepreneur who is hopefully talking to a lot of um, budding or wannabe entrepreneurs, uh, either on the small scale or just the very individual scale or maybe even a larger scale, um, I appreciate getting advice like that from anybody I can. Uh, I'd like to have Peter Klein on the show as well. Um, so where, uh, where can people find you? What are you, what are you doing right now? You mentioned the, you mentioned the, the economics for entrepreneurs podcast. Is that, are you hosting that or were you just on it? I'm not hosting, but I, uh, I am, I'm a regular uh, participant or contributor to it. Uh, so I've been on it. I don't know how many times, but at least a dozen times already. Um, and we're recording another one shortly as well. So I, I'm on there. I write at the Mises Institute. I write occasionally for the Libertarian Institute. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm pretty active on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle? It's my name. So P-R-B-L-U-N-D. Great. I'll make sure to link to it. Thank you. Um, and I mean, what I do there is really try to educate people in terms of sound economics. So I'm trying to to rid the world of economic illiteracy in a sense. Awesome. It's needed. Well, I really appreciate your time today, Pear. Thank you so much for joining us and we will try to have you back on soon. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks again to Pear Beeland for joining me. Today, for episode number seven, you can find today's show notes, including links to Pear's personal site, his Twitter, his books, and various and sundry writings across the internet at urbanagorist.com slash seven. And please don't forget to check out the Fold card at urbanagorist.com slash fold. Remember, Fold is the app that you can download on your phone where you can purchase gift cards using Bitcoin. And the Fold card is a debit card that you can use for everyday purchases where you earn Bitcoin as a reward. If you enjoy the Urban Agorist podcast, please be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, YouTube, or wherever it is that you consume podcasts. Leave a rating or a review, hit the thumbs up button, and importantly, share the show with your friends. And until next time, live free. This is the way